The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. Well, if you've got a copy of God's Word in front of you, I'd invite you to pull it out and open it up to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3. This morning we come to Mark chapter 3, really verses 31 through verse 35, but this account really begins back in verse 20. And so I'll read verses 20 through 35, just so we're seeing this whole portion. Mark chapter 3. Please follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I begin. And when he came home, the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called to them, he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is, is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, there's a well-known verse. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. This verse means that when a person becomes a Christian or when they are born again or born from above, God grants them new spiritual life. They're spiritually changed. God creates a new creation out of this redeemed sinner. And with this new spiritual life comes an entirely new perspective and outlook on life. Now, there's a complete overhaul of ambitions and priorities and direction in life. Formally, Scripture tells us that they were enslaved to their various passions and lusts. And now they've been set free to live a life that's pleasing to God. Their passion becomes holiness. Their ambition in life becomes the glory of God. And their priority becomes obedience to God's word. They were once spiritually dead, but they now have been freed to live a life of holiness. They were once blind, but now they can see. They were once a slave of sin, and now they've become a slave of 
Christ. This is true of every Christian, every believer. Every true Christian has experienced this all-encompassing spiritual transformation that we sometimes call the new birth. Again, Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. And in the wake of such a spiritual transformation, there isn't a necessary reordering of life. Life cannot and should not look the same after conversion. No realm of life will go unchanged, untouched. No facet of day-to-day living can go unimpacted. The Christian, after conversion, now joyfully offers up his life in service to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And really, the Lordship of Christ affects every area of his life. It affects how one might work. It affects how we even think. It affects how we spend every waking moment. And it certainly affects all of our relationships. Again, the lordship of Christ permeates all of life. And therefore, there's a necessary reordering of relationships that occurs at salvation. Serving Christ becomes the ultimate priority of a person's life. And this necessarily means that there are changes in our relationships. Ideally, these relationships in life only change for the better. But oftentimes, the Christian's new devotion to Christ brings them into conflict with unbelieving family members and unbelieving friends who do not share the same priorities and the same commitment to Christ. And this conflict often relates or results in a choice a choice to either live to please Christ or to live to please family members. Ultimately, the Christian chooses to please Christ. As Peter said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. And so this necessary reordering of relationships is all part of the necessary cost of following Christ. Our Lord did not seek to hide this from us. In fact, he was very explicit about this truth. For example, turn over with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 10. If you're in, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 10. Back up, if you're in Mark, back up to the Gospel of Matthew. And look with me at Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. This is one of the many calls to discipleship that we find in the Gospels. Look at Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. Jesus says, Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake, he will find it. Upon reading a passage like this one, a person might come to the conclusion that the Christian really should just disregard all of his former relationships in life once he becomes a Christian, just to forsake all to follow Christ. But we know that's not what this passage is teaching. We know that from the rest of the New Testament. We know that a Christian ought to 
prioritize his relationship with his family greatly. I mean, for example, Scripture teaches that husbands are to sacrificially love their wives. We see that in Ephesians 5.25. This means they're to care for them, meet their needs, financially provide for them. Wives are to submit to their imperfect husband's leadership out of a reverence to Christ. They're also to look after the needs of the home, 1 Timothy 5 tells us. Fathers are to work diligently to care for their children and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4 says. Mothers are also to love their children and invest in them. We see this in Titus chapter 2. They're to assist in the nurturing of the children in the faith. On their part, children are to obey their parents and to honor their father and mother. We see this in Ephesians 6. Children are to even eventually go on to provide for their parents and care for their aging parents and even grandparents. According to 1 Timothy 5, it's only right for parents and grandparents in their later years of life to receive a return on investment from their own children who they have invested in themselves. So in no way is a Christian called to forsake his family and disregard his familial duties. The Apostle Paul makes this emphatically clear in 1 Timothy 5.8. He says this, If anyone does not provide for his own, his own, his own family, and especially of those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So necessarily, a believer is to care for his family, is to provide for his family. So we would be right to conclude that really the best husbands in this life, the best wives, the best fathers and mothers and grandparents and, and even grandchildren are those who are committed to Christ. Christians understand what God has created them to be in all of these familial roles, so they seek to glorify God in those roles. Furthermore, it's a sad reality when a professing Christian does not take seriously his call to, to these, or these family roles. It's very troubling to see a professing Christian who sinfully is negligent in regard to his family, these God-given duties. Often, such a dereliction of duty in the Christian home, if not repented of, becomes, really becomes an issue that calls into question their commitment to Christ, and if indeed they are following Christ. However, when someone becomes a Christian, there is an ultimate change of allegiance that happens. There is this, this shifting of allegiance. Christ takes first place. Their worship is given ultimately to Christ, and their greatest love in this life is reserved for Christ. This is what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 10, say, for example, in verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You could substitute in any familial relationship. If you love a family member more than you love Christ, Jesus says, you're not worthy of me. You're not my disciple. When someone becomes a Christian, there's a necessary reordering of relationships. But this, does not, this then does not mean that the, these familial responsibilities that we have and these relationships are, are to be altogether jettisoned. No, of course not. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth as we've seen from Scripture. 
And this morning, as we come to Mark chapter 3, we see this reordering or reprioritization of relationships within even Jesus' own very life. As the prioritized relationships in Jesus' life begin to shift, it's not as if Jesus altogether forsook his familiar relationships, but they do change. Additionally, we see in Mark chapter 3 the response of Jesus' family to Christ. And all of these are striking as we sort of observe how these relationships are unfolding in the life of Christ in Mark chapter 3. So if you're not already there, turn back to Mark chapter 3 as we sort of ask the question, well, what about Jesus' own family? How do these relationships work out in Jesus' family? And as we look at this passage, it's unique. I think there's at least two questions that come to our mind. Two questions that deal with Jesus' own family relationships. First, we ask ourselves, in verses 20 and 21, why did Jesus' own mother and his brothers not know and understand who he was? I mean, this is a confusing matter. Why would Mary and Jesus' own brothers not understand who Jesus was? Secondly, the second question towards the end of the account, we ask, why would Jesus not show more hospitality to his family outside? It sort of appeared that he snubbed them entirely. This, of course, suggests then another question. Did Jesus somehow fail to show proper honor and respect to his own family? Should he have not been more welcoming to them and more hospitable when they made the journey from Nazareth over to Capernaum? Well, this morning we'll seek to answer these two questions and allow these two questions really then to organize our time in this passage. And it's my hope that, that in answering these questions we'll gain an appreciation of what Mark wanted us to see here in the life of Christ by, by observing some of the details that he left behind for us in this unique day in the life of Christ. I'm convinced that Mark recorded this account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a particular reason. Namely, it was to teach or to instruct that as Christians, we, could, we should see the priority that we are to have for our spiritual relationships, our sort of spiritual family. So let's begin by considering this first question. In verses 20 and 21, why did Jesus' own mother and his brothers not understand who Jesus was? Look again at those two verses, Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. So once again, we find Jesus here in a packed house. Presumably, it's Peter's house in Capernaum. That's where Jesus was staying. And the crowd, it seems, has filled up all of the space inside the house. And likely, the crowd was spilling outside the door and into the street. The crowd was an inconvenience, it would seem, at least to the disciples. Jesus and the disciples were unable to eat because of the demands of the crowds. Based upon the parallel passage that we see in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 12, we know that Jesus was inside the house speaking to the crowds. He was teaching them. Now, on this occasion, it would seem that they were not clamoring for healing. They were there to learn from Christ and to listen to his teaching. 
Somehow, the news of all of this and all of the happenings around Christ's life made, made its way back to Nazareth and to Jesus' family. Capernaum was the big city compared to the small village of Nazareth where Jesus was raised. And most likely, the family had learned about the incredible popularity around uh, this family member, their brother or their son in Mary's case, and all of this prov provoked concern in their hearts. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing or why he was doing it, and they could not fathom or understand all of the reports about the commotion that had been received around Christ. And certainly, they would not have Certainly, they would have heard about Jesus' healing miracles, his casting out of demons, and his immense popularity. So their concern and their confusion prompted them to make the 20-mile journey from Nazareth to Capernaum. And they wanted, it says, to come take custody of him, to go get him, to restrain him. Mark adds that Jesus' family, that they were saying of Jesus together, this is probably how they were reasoning together in their minds, they were saying, he's lost his senses. He, he's out of it. He's beside himself. Apparently, this was the conclusion that they had come to as a family, which caused them to set out from Nazareth. They had assumed that Jesus had lost touch with reality. Again, that was the opinion of Jesus' own mother and his brother's. Perhaps they concluded this was some sort of stressed-induced, uh, out-of-touch, beside-himself condition, and that's what made them set out. The same language is used of the Apostle Paul under the magistrate Festus in Acts 26, 24, when Festus said to Paul, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. So clearly, this is not something that you would want your family to say of you, that you're, you're mad, that you're out of your mind. So why would Jesus' own family think that he's gone mad? I mean, that's really our question after all. Why wouldn't they know his true identity as the Messiah? Of all people, they, have, should, have un, they should have known who he was. Naturally, we would expect Jesus' own family to be a source of encouragement and support, and yet here, strangely, they're a source of opposition. And that seems to be what they are. Mark seems to want to make clear that they are a source of opposition in this text because he intentionally connects them with the opposition that comes from the scribes. So not only is the account of the scribes' slanderous accusation, which we saw last week, not only is it presented here, but really that account is sandwiched in between the two halves of this incident involving Jesus' family. So we see this. Mark just sort of crushes them together or puts them together. That's how they would have unfolded chronologically as well. But there's also even a similarity in what both opposition groups express and express of Christ. In the original language, there's, there's a parallel structure of the family's assumption and the scribe's accusation of Christ. Mark recorded the opinion of Jesus' family by saying, they were saying that he is insane. And then Mark recorded the opinion of the scribe saying, they were saying that he has Beelzebul. And in the original, there's a formal, formal parallel that exists between these two statements that should connect it in the reader's mind. So both the family and this delegation of scribes from Jerusalem were falsely saying untrue things about Christ. 
They were both, in a sense, opposed to his mission here. We understand the opposition coming from the scribes, but, but what about the family? Naturally, again, we would assume that they should have known better. Why are they in opposition to Christ? Well, Jesus' mother and his brothers will obviously show up again later in verse 31, but it might be helpful to think just a little bit more about Jesus' family. Mark gives us a little bit more information about them in Mark chapter 6. Look over there to Mark chapter 6 and look with me at verse 3. There in Mark 6, 3, the attendants of a synagogue are becoming skeptical of Christ. And they ask this, look at verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So here we learn the name of Jesus' four brothers. And we also learn that Jesus had sisters, sisters in the plural. This would indicate at least that Jesus had six total siblings. After Jesus, apparently, Mary and Joseph had fathered six other children, or at least six other. There could have been more sisters. There was at least two from this text we can gather. Of course, they would have been what we might call half-siblings, since Jesus was divinely conceived. In a biological sense, Jesus was not the son of Joseph of Arimathea. But after Jesus, Mary went on to have other children. We can see that plainly here, as one would expect a young married couple to do, to go on to have children. And just as a side note here that's worth noting, there's nothing in this text or really anywhere else in the Bible that one could use in support of the Roman Catholic doctrine that Mary was a perpetual virgin. That is, of course, what they believe, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, or they even call her an ever-virgin. Despite Rome's strange straining of these passages, and these particular ones that mention Jesus' brother, brothers, the very existence of brothers and sisters undermines the very notion of somehow a, a proposed perpetual virginity of Mary. That is simply not true. We see that here. Thinking further about Joseph's, or the family of Jesus, many have speculated that Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom we might refer to as the stepfather of Jesus, at this point in Jesus' life, many conclude that he had already passed away, that he had passed away from unknown causes, we're not told, but that he, is, he had passed away, he was not living. Certainly, if Joseph were alive at this time, one would expect Joseph to be the one leading the caravan from Nazareth to Capernaum to come get Jesus, but we don't see him here. So in light of Joseph's absence in Mark 3 and Mark 6, I believe there's good reason to believe that, Joseph's, that Joseph had already died, that Jesus' father had died, which I think adds a little bit more meaning in Isaiah 53 when it says of the Messiah, Jesus will be a, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's Isaiah 53, verse 3. So Jesus suffered the loss of his own father. But beyond Mark 6, 3, there's no other reference towards Jesus' sisters. We see them here. But the brothers do show up again. We see them in, in John chapter 7. I invite you to turn over there, John chapter 7. Here they appear again. 
And I just invite you to briefly turn there with me. John chapter 7, and look with me beginning in verse 1, just to see the sort of the attitude of Jesus' brothers towards Jesus. And it says there, John chapter 7, verse 1, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of the booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples may also see your works which you're doing. For no one does anything in secret when he, seek, when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So there's almost a sense of mockery coming from Jesus' own brothers in this passage. Go, go show yourself to everyone. Go, go let everyone see the miracles you're doing, they say. And as is stated in verse 5, clearly they're unbelieving. Jesus' brothers did not have faith in him to be the Messiah. They were not trusting in him, which again is sort of troubling. How could Jesus' brothers have missed it? Apparently, during Jesus' years at home, Jesus did not make a habit of doing private miracles for his family and for his brothers as a form of entertainment. Apparently, Jesus never found it necessary to reveal his divine nature to these brothers. Apparently, even Jesus' sinless nature was not observed and taken note of by his family members. For, for some reason, I'm speculating, it would seem that Mary and Joseph decided to keep this truth from him, or that maybe they preserved Jesus' supernatural birth from being informed of them. I'm not sure why that would have been. Perhaps they were trying to keep his miraculous birth in secret. Again, you'll be reminded that they did have to flee to Egypt for a season to escape from the murderous threats of Herod. So maybe there was some rationale for Mary to keep back the true identity of Christ or her son from the brothers. We can be sure that Jesus purposely himself did not reveal his identity to them. But this is about the brothers. Well, what about Mary? I mean, she's a little bit different, I would say. I mean, did not the angel Gabriel himself tell her directly that she would soon be pregnant and she would bear a son who would be called the Son of the Most High God? I mean, that's pretty clear. You know, that this one who would be birthed by her would sit on the throne of David, ruling over the house of Jacob forever. That's what Mary was told in Luke chapter 1, and that his kingdom would have no end. Did she not herself experience supernatural conception and a virgin birth? Did she not recall the, the words reported by excited shepherds on the night Jesus was born and how the angel informed them about a savior who had been born, this one who is Christ the Lord? I mean, Mary knew all these things. She had heard all these things. But in spite of all this, based upon, based upon the comment in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it seems that Mary did not fully understand them. I mean, turn back again to Mark chapter 3 with me. I hesitate to say it, but it would seem that Mary herself did not believe. This was certainly true of the brothers. We see that in John 7, verse 5. But for whatever reason, Mary didn't fully get it. Therefore, she too could say about Jesus, as he was doing all these great works, working miracles, she would say, ah, oh, he must have lost his mind. He must not be with reality. That was her conclusion as well. One commentator here noted, 
this. He said, it's a mournful spectacle to think about the mother and brothers of Jesus saying he has lost his senses. I would agree. It's a mournful thing to consider. How did they not get it? But I would also just have to say we should note the apologetic value of what Mark records here in verse 21. I mean, the fact that Mark thought it best to record this statement from his family members, Jesus' own family members, recording the statement of unbelief testifies that Mark was telling the truth. I mean, if Mark was perpetuating a myth about Jesus of Nazareth, if he was sort of deviously seeking to establish a new religion, then he certainly would have left out this detail. But instead, Mark recorded it because it was true. Unbelief existed in Jesus' own family. And I think we'd be right to categorize this unbelief as sin. It is a sin to reject Christ, to not believe in him. And Jesus' brothers and even his own mother were guilty of this sin of unbelief, at least in this very moment. The reality of Mary's struggle to believe here recorded in Mark really flies in the face of the Roman Catholic doctrine in in regards to Mary. This past week, I spent some time in the Roman Catholic Catechism just reviewing some of their beliefs about Mary. And make no mistake, among many other strange doctrines related to Mary, they believe that Mary never sinned in her life. In fact, according to Roman Catholic official teaching, Mary was born free of original sin. She was not like you or I, was not born into sin like we were. She came into this world free from the contamination of original sin, and then she never sinned in this life. And therefore, because of her sinless conception and how she came into this world, and because of her faith, God awarded her with being the mother of Jesus. That's official Roman Catholic doctrine, which of course is completely at odds with the clear teaching of Scripture. Not only was Mary not a perpetual virgin, as she clearly had other children, she was a sinner like the rest of us. And despite the unique revelation that she received some 30 years earlier, she was slow to believe. It took a while for her to get it. She faltered in her faith. And we ask ourselves, well, okay, well, why did they not believe? Why did Jesus' family not know? And I guess I would conclude with two answers. One, it was not their time. It was not their time. Soon enough, they would believe. We see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, for example. There, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers are included in the group that make up the early church. Uh, they came to believe in him because they, they, they left all to be a part of this early Christian movement. So eventually they would come to fully believe. They would come to repent of their former unbelief and embraced Jesus as Na- of Nazareth as the Savior of the world. But for whatever reason, in Mark chapter 3, it's not their time. So that's at least one reason why Jesus' family did not believe. But they would, again, they would believe soon enough. Perhaps there's another reason, a pedagogical teaching reason to this unbelief that existed in Jesus' family member. There's a lesson about the, the necessity of one to have personal faith. What I mean is that here there's a reminder that the presence of faith in one's family does not guarantee that you yourself are believing or that you yourself will go to heaven. There's a reminder here that the presence of believing family members in your own family 
has no bearing whatsoever on your own personal salvation. And this was true even of Jesus' own family. The faith of a a believing husband or a believing wife or the, the faith of a believing parent will not get you into heaven. It will not relate even in the slightest bit to your own eternal destiny. We all come into the kingdom of God alone. Each person will be held accountable for their own unbelief on the last day. Jesus' brothers and his own mother received no automatic passes into the kingdom of God. We might say there, there are no family passes into heaven. And no one can sort of, not even Jesus' own family members could ride on his coattails into heaven. Each person must on their own come to belief and repentance. And in time, for Jesus' own family, they would do so. So why did they not believe? Well, in times they would believe. It wasn't their time yet, but the Lord knew in time he'd bring them to faith. And secondly, unbelief in Jesus' own family members instructs us and reminds us of the need of personal faith. And this brings us then to our second question. Why would Jesus not show more hospitality to his family? Look again at the text in verse 31. Mark chapter 3, verse 31. Then his Mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. So average walking speed is about three miles per hour. So we can figure that of the 20-mile trip from Nazareth to Capernaum, it would have taken them the better part of a day, about seven hours. Presumably, they made the trip in, in one straight day. But in the time that it took them to make this trip, Jesus confronts the delegation of scribes from Jerusalem. We looked at that last week. But now, in verse 31, the family has arrived. And note the location. They're outside the house. They're standing outside. Presumably, there's no room in the house for them to go in. And so they send word inside to Jesus. The text just says they called him. It's a little undescript or nondescript. Apparently, they were reluctantly to publicly declare their intention to go and get him and to restrain him. So the word was passed along from person to person until it reached someone close enough and maybe brave enough to voice this notice. And look at verse 32. A crowd was sitting around him and they said, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Certainly, this report made in the presence of the crowd would have been unexpected. I think it would have been startling. Perhaps that's the reason for the word behold. Look, wow, your mother and your brothers, they're they're outside. They're waiting for you out there, Jesus. And again, the location is noted. They're on the outside. They're looking inside. And they were desiring that Jesus would come out to them. Compare this to the crowd who here is pictured as seated around Jesus. They're, They're intentionally listening to his every word. Jesus' response is startling. We see it in verse 33. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? The grammar of this sentence uniquely highlights Mary, actually. And perhaps we could translate Jesus' question here as, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? It's a rhetorical question. It seems, I wouldn't say it's intended to offend, but it's clearly intended to teach something. Look then at what Mark records that Jesus does next. In verse 34, it says, Looking about at those who were sitting around him. So here Jesus scans the room, and he's intentionally looking at those sitting around him. 
This would seem to be a reference to the same group of people mentioned in verse 32, those who were sitting around him. But there is another word added in verse 34. In my English Bible, the English wording here leads the reader to believe that it's the exact same group in verse 32 and verse 34 being referenced. But in verse 34, there's an additional word added in the Greek. It's an adverb. It's an adverb that indicates that Jesus was referring to those who were sitting around him in a circle, who had sort of encircled him, the near circle who were directly around him. As he taught, there were were people all around him, but there were some who were sitting directly around him, encircling him. The only English version that I found that captured the unique wording here well was the, the NIV, which renders verse 34, then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him. That's a significant little word there. It would appear that Jesus was particularly looking at those who were directly seated around him. And we ask, well, who would that be? Well, coming on the heels of what came above in verses 13 through 19, where Jesus named each one of his disciples, it would seem that it's his 12 disciples who are seated seated around him. We should see this as a reference to the 12. So Mark paints the picture of Jesus deliberately making eye contact with his inner circle who sat around him as he taught. In the parallel passage to this in Mark chapter 12, in verse 49, Matthew remembers or adds a different detail. He he says that Jesus directly pointed at his disciples. So not only was he looking at them, but he was pointing at the 12. So again, Jesus' blood relatives are on the outside, and Jesus' pointing at and making eye contact with his inner circle, the 12. And then he says these words in verse 34, Behold, my mother and my brothers. And then Jesus sort of explains in verse 35, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mothers. Whoever does the will of God, implication, the 12 there who he's pointed to are ones who are doing the will of God. But we ask, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to do the will of God? Well, simply, to do the will of God means to obey the commands of God found in Scripture. It means to obey the commands of God. In the parallel passage to this count in in Luke chapter 8, Luke makes this abundantly clear. Write down this cross-reference, Luke chapter 8, verse 21. It says this, But he, referring to Jesus, answered them and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. To do the will of God is to hear the word of God and to do it, to hear it and obey it. These are synonymous phrases. It's to take your instructions from life, or for life, from the Word of God. It's to submit to the Word of God. To do the will of God is to submit to the Word of God. Those who hear the Word of God and do it give evidence that they are in the family of God. And in the Gospel of Mark, uh, thus far, the, the two commands that we've seen, the two prominent commands that we've seen come clear back from chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus commanded, repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was Jesus' message. Repent and believe. That's what you must do. So it is those who had heard the preaching of Jesus, heard these commands to repent and believe, and who subsequently obeyed those commands and repented of their sins and believed in the good news of Jesus' coming 
They were the ones who were the family of God, like the 12 disciples. These repentant, believing ones are Jesus' metaphorical brothers and sisters and even mother. Even I'll add that there's an aspect of an invitation in Jesus' words. If anyone is willing to believe the gospel and repent of their sins, do the commands of God, they will prove themselves to be among the family of God. Regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of age, Jesus' family is made up of those who hear the word of God and obey it. That was the point that Jesus wanted to make here. And the occasion of Jesus' own family coming from Nazareth to restrain him made for the perfect opportunity to drive home this particular message. It was not as if Jesus' family members or family relations were somehow dissolved. We know that's not the case. Mary and Jesus' brothers remained his family. They were still his family, of course. These familial bonds remained significant. Familial responsibilities still existed within Jesus' own family. But Jesus' point is that there's a deeper relational intimacy that exists with those who have repented of their sins and who have trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a deeper relationship that exists there than the relationship that exists even among one's own blood family. There's a greater relational intimacy, greater relational privilege, and even a greater relational priority. This passage demonstrates that in Jesus' own life, spiritual relationships transcended the physical family. And so returning to our question, why did Jesus seemingly snub his family here? Why did he not welcome them in after this long journey? Well, I think the best answer to a question like this is that we simply do not know. We we don't know the answer to this. We, We know for certain that Jesus no way here sinned against his family. Such an idea would be, of course, blasphemous. But perhaps, we're not told, but perhaps he did welcome them. Perhaps he said these things through verse 35, and then he did go out and welcome them. We're simply not told. Perhaps after he made this comment, he dismissed the crowd and went out to greet his brothers and mother. We're simply not told what Jesus did or did not do after his words here. But we can be certain that he continued to honor his mother and care for his brothers. And we know that he did this clear up until the end of his life. Because as he hung on the cross in John chapter 19, he directed the apostle John to care for his aging mother, knowing that he would no longer be able to fulfill his familial obligation to his own mother. So he made provision for her from the cross. So we don't know how this scene in Mark chapter 3 ended. What's obvious is that Mark didn't care to give us those details. Mark desired to stress the point that Jesus was making here. The point Mark is is making is clear. Jesus considers his followers, his disciples, to be family. A spiritual family that surpasses the importance of physical family. And Jesus' prioritizing of spiritual family over physical family certainly foreshadows foreshadows life in the church. In the church, we're rightly called brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a supremacy and an eternality to relationships inside the church that exists nowhere else in society. 
There's a fellowship in the church that runs deeper than blood. Relationship with fellow members of the church are really precious for the believer. Relationships with fellow Christians are precious to the follower of Christ. There's a a like-mindedness, a unity of the spirit that exists, a loving fraternal among those who consider themselves ambassadors for Christ. Fellow church members are our prayer support. They're those who carry us in this life. They're those who we first call for help. They admonish us when we step out of line. They encourage us when we're faint-hearted in this life. They're the ones who come under our arms and lift us up when we are weak. Indeed, our love for one another inside the church is part of what sort of signifies or identifies us as Christians. Our love for one another brands us as Christians. We've seen this, we see this in what Jesus told the 12 in John chapter 3, 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love for other Christians identifies you as a Christian. And so in the church, we're commanded to love one another. And those who have submitted themselves to Christ, they want to take this call very seriously. They want to obey the command to love others. In fact, Scripture teaches that those who have no love for the church indicate that they're not truly in Christ. Now, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 makes this clear. It says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Here's how you can identify who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. He gives two things. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. In context here, brother referring to fellow Christians. No love for fellow Christians represents that you, indicates that you might not be a Christian. And so as I think as we just sort of step back and consider this account as a whole, this unique incident from the life of Christ, I believe there's this spiritual lesson behind it. There are really two types of individuals that this passage might particularly indict or, or might be particularly convicting for two types of people. And the two types of people that I thought might be most of offended by this are individuals, number one, who have an inordinate love for their family, or their love for their family controls their life. Certainly you've known Christians who are like this. They value their earthly relationships so much that their earthly relationships with their family really control their priorities. What their kids want them to do, that's what they do. Or what their parents want them to do, that's what they do. Or what their spouse wants them to do, then that just negates all the other responsibilities they've been given by Christ because it's, it's family. And family, for some, trumps their relationship with Christ. And this passage here indicates that clearly should not be. The family, our earthly family, should not occupy a place of preeminence in our lives. Clearly, Christ comes first for us. And the second group of individuals who might be indicted by this passage are are those who have an inordinate love for the church or an out-of-alignment love for the church or really a negligent love for the church. You could examine their life and you see really minimal interaction with the family of God, minimal relationships, just a shallowness to relations in the church. 
Just a coming and going, ships passing in the night, and no real depth to the love or relationship, uh, no sense of being known in the church. This passage indicates that that should not be. We, like Jesus, we should value our spiritual family, see see them as eternal relationships that we'll continue with forever, knowing our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should prioritize these relationships. So this should be our goal, to set out to have this sort of family, as Christ pointed out here. Families with those who do the will of God, who surrender their life to Christ and live according to his will for them. So let's pray towards that end this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this example, this teaching moment from the life of Christ. Lord, we, we look at Christ and just even are shocked by the words that come out of his mouth as he refers to his disciples as his own brothers and even mother, referring to them as family because of their, their love for Christ, because of their love for God and their willingness to submit to him and to obey him. Lord, I pray that that would be true of each one of us. Lord, that we would prioritize relationships in the church, that we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would serve them, that we'd come alongside them, that we'd be careful to follow all of the one another passages that we find in Scripture, that we would take uh, with great weightiness the commands given to us uh, to care for and love and admonish and encourage and come alongside and speak the truth. So many things we've been commanded to do in relation to one another. Help us to be faithful towards those commands. And Lord, I pray for any here who might have inordinate relationships, where their relationships with their family have really trumped their relationship with Christ and their relationships and commitments to family keep them from Christ and keep them from the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction and that you would allow them and grant them the opportunity to see their their need for fellowship and for commitment and, and really involvement in the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd grow us up in love for one another out of a reverence and an awe for you. Lord, we pray you do this work in us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.